Hello, and again, welcome to Bit Depth. I'm Santiago Ramones. Across from me is Patrick Conlon. Uh, it's been a long time coming. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so as always, to start, uh, who are you? What do you do? So I'm Patrick Conlon. <laughs> I'm a composer and violinist. Mm. Um, I'm the assistant director at ACM, and I like making music. Yeah. um so i mean let's start with composing uh how did music first make its way to your life cool so um way back in my wee years (laughs) as a little kid in ottawa canada um my so until i was six or seven uh we lived with my grandparents um Mm -hmm. so my mom's parents sort of like helped raise me during those first few years kind of normal kid thing yeah um and they had a piano Mm -hmm. and i think there's a picture of me when i'm like six months old (laughs) like sitting on my granddad's lap playing the piano (laughs) um and from the beginning so i started violin at uh I think I was seven, seven or eight, mm. or I know I wasn't six. I think it was seven. Um, and I remember we went and saw a concert at, so uh, my grandmother was actually the first female critic, music critic for a major newspaper in Canada. Cool. Um, and so she went to like all of the shows mm-hmm. that would happen at the National Arts Center. And I remember I went to the National Arts Center. I do not remember who this guy was <laughs> but he was this very nervous like 18 year old russian violinist cool um i remember being like what he did was super badass yeah and so my parents asked me my sister played piano um and they asked me when i was like six or seven like hey what instrument do you want to play and i was like i want to play violin yeah and i think it's because i'd just seen that concert and i yeah. was like that was cool but i remember i have no idea i bet this kid's <laughs> someone famous now but um it's like I didn't know then how weird it was, but I remember they asked him to play an encore. Yeah. And he just played like a C major scale really fast and then went back <laughs> off stage. Like I think he did not have like yeah. an encore ready. Mm-hmm. So he just played some like, <laughs> I could be remembering this wrong. This is like decades ago. Right. But, and um, you're also very small. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, and so um, I like playing on the piano from age i don't know two or three mm-hmm. and i would always make stuff up like yeah. i always would spend more of my time making stuff up on the instruments than i would practicing yeah. much to all of my teachers <laughs> chagrin yeah yeah um so when was your first i guess big attachment to music um that well no even better is at what point did you decide that music was going to be your life? So I don't think I really made a hardcore decision about it mm-hmm. until maybe sophomore, junior year of high school. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of the two extracurriculars that I did the most of where I played soccer um, mm-hmm. pretty competitively until I was 15 or 16. I know around 14, I started having... It was sort of like I played on a competitive team for like 
a year and a half, two years, mm-hmm. and it got to the point where it was like, I had violin lessons, and then I had rehearsal, and like I ran out of days to do both at yeah. the level. Like soccer was supposed to be, uh, you'd have Saturday and Sunday games. Mm-hmm. There was Tuesday rehearsal. There was or rehearsal um, practice. Then they had Wednesday. They wanted to start doing like runs, and so mm-hmm. it was two two practices, two games, and then they yeah. were going to add in like a, you know staying in shape getting in better shape day sure and i was just like that's on top of my violin lesson i can't yeah i remember my coach said like well you have to choose one and mm-hmm. i remember being like cool i choose violin <laughs> and then i quit the team yeah like i was like I, if you're giving me an ultimatum yeah the person giving me the ultimatum is not going to make it yeah um <laughs> i also remember around there it was like uh so soccer in the u.s has gotten bigger mm-hmm. but um i was like okay well i'm going to be a professional violinist and at least I'll make more money than I would if I tried to be a professional soccer player. <laughs> so it was like, hey, I'm making the the, the right ec- sure. economic choice for my financial future. Yeah. Um, but I've always like, um, I like the act of creating art. Mm-hmm. And so like, I drew a lot in middle school, mm-hmm. was not very good at it. <laughs> um, I've always written a lot. So like uh, mm-hmm. literature, poetry, all of that stuff. Yeah. And um, I know about sophomore year, like freshman, sophomore year, I was in a band, I would do all these things. And I kind of realized like, hey, you know, I like reading as much as I like making music. Yeah. I like writing and um, I was interested in like video game design Mm -hmm. um, because I really liked how you could like, there were a couple games that had like modding. So you could, I used them really as more film things than actually how you're supposed to so like you could have a 3d camera and then like there was a narrative so you wrote all the text for it Mm -hmm. i did voiceovers for it (laughs) custom skins and kind of like yeah i didn't do it the way you were supposed to do it it was really more of a narrative and i kind of just had this realization that like hey the music thing like the other ones there was someone else at the school who did it Mm -hmm. and was better than me Mm -hmm. and on the music thing there wasn't so mm-hmm. I was like, hey, maybe this is my art. This is going to be the artistic outlet. Sure. Um, and it just kept becoming more and more a part of my life. And I was like, cool, yeah, let's try it. <laughs> um, so what has been your major goal throughout your career? So my one major goal. <laughs> if there is one. Um, so there's like a funny one. So I had my first, I think I was 13 was my first professional gig. Hmm. Like, uh, there was a retirement party that wanted a string quartet mm-hmm. and, um, there was always like one string quartet at the high school <laughs> that would play them. And the senior who usually played second violin, it couldn't do it. So I filled in, hmm. um, I made like a hundred bucks. Cool. For like two hours of work playing yeah. chamber music. Heck yeah. And I kind of <laughs> did this thing where I was like, so I was a big thing of like, my parents were always, if you get straight A's and you get a scholarship to pay for college, you mm-hmm. don't have to get a job. Mm-hmm. Basically, if you get a B, you're getting a job. Sure. Like you're <laughs> going to pay for college one way or the other. Yeah. Um, and so I kind of, 
had this thing. I mean, it's like good and bad. It probably would have been good for me to work a job at some point. <laughs> but I kind of made this pact with myself of like, hey, I'm going to see if I can never mm. work a real job in my life. <laughs> like everything's going to be music related. Mm -hmm. um, and I've pulled it off. Yeah. So far. I mean, we're <laughs> almost 20 years later and I'm... <laughs> I still have yet to work a, a quote unquote non music yeah, or a real, real job. job. Yeah. Um, and for me, that gave it kind of a cool. Mm -hmm. It was interesting. Like, I. So, a lot of people always talk about like their plan B's and stuff. Mm -hmm. I never had a plan B because mm -hmm. it was always working. Yeah. And a lot of that's just luck and mm -hmm. all of those things. But, like, I don't know. It was like it, there wasn't a, yeah, yeah. There, there wasn't a plan B. I was like, I'll deal with that if I have to deal with that. Sure. But like, I'm not going to give myself an out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then what brought you to the States? So when I was around 10, I think this was like, I think it was 2000 was the year. Because I remember going back and watching Y2K happen. Uh, <laughs> with like my best bud back in Canada. Um, but it was like we were staying with them because we had moved to the States that year. So mm -hmm. I think it was like maybe fall of 1999, mm. I think is when we moved. Uh, my mom got a gig. Uh, she got a tenured professor position at OU, um, which she'd been working towards for forever. Those positions are like mm -hmm. impossible to get. Um so yeah, so we moved to Oklahoma, I think I was in fifth or sixth grade, something like that, fifth, I think yeah. I was in fifth grade. No, I was in fourth grade. <laughs> um, and I really loved the experience of being an immigrant, because mm. um, it's like, I don't know, I look like a lot of other Canadians who are in Ottawa. <laughs> um, there's a big Scotch-Irish population there. Mm. Um and I really enjoyed being a minority with a group of other minorities from other places. Mm -hmm. Like there was this very like, and my parents found all the Canadians that were in Norman, Oklahoma. <laughs> so we knew all of them. Sure. Um, but then it was like, I had, you know, there's a Greek family I got really close with in high school. Mm. Um, you know, there's a guy from Germany that I hung out with for a while. Like it was cool. Like you yeah, became yeah. part of this like, your people are immigrants. Yeah. So you get everybody who isn't from there, mm -hmm. which is cool. And you mm -hmm. have all these shared experiences going through the same immigration system. Yeah. Um, so for me, I always took it as like, it was a real positive for me. And I've since yeah. like, I've gotten my, I got my American citizenship, I think four or five years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and like, I always present myself as Canadian American mm -hmm. as like, as Canadian and then I became Canadian-American. Like, it's like a timeline <laughs> for me. Um, and it's interesting. There's a lot of, like, people get weird about nationalities. Mm -hmm. Like, I know uh, when my granddad was kind of, like, at the end, he was like, you're not Canadian anymore. And I was like, I want to have a discussion with you about whether or not nation states are actually something that's worthwhile. <laughs> um, but it was an interesting, like, yeah, yeah. it was an interesting thing. And uh, there is a little... Um, it's like I'm not 100% Canadian anymore, but I'm definitely not 100% American anymore. Yeah. And the people who I 
and like, oh, we have the same experiences mm -hmm. are like first generation immigrants who yeah. moved here when they were young. And I go like, oh, we've had the same like, yeah, there's a country that like you take a lot of your cultural cues from, mm -hmm. but you left young enough that like, I've got a ton of family up there, but it's like, yeah. I see them once every three or four years usually. Right. So like, mm -hmm. I got to connect back with a bunch of them like over the last couple of years because my parents retired back to there. My sister's in mm -hmm. Ottawa and my aunt and uncles are there. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> it's, the whole family is within like mm -hmm. Ottawa, Toronto area. Um, but it's it's a neat, for yeah. me it's a neat thing to be a part of. Yeah, and I, I totally feel that too, being uh, an immigrant myself. And it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of weird because I get like, friend requests from people with my last name mm -hmm. and I'm like I don't know you but we are family apparently right uh, but yeah I also have like a million cousins so yeah <laughs> I have a pretty small family my dad's side has some there's some cousins there my mom's <laughs> side of the family is like it's a very small family tree yeah well my mom has like seven sisters or something like oh, that nice. so. yeah. <laughs> uh going uh back to uh making music um, what's your favorite instrument to write for? Well, I mean, like, it's cheating, but writing for string instruments. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's like, I don't think I really learned how to write for instruments that I don't play until I was in my mid-20s. Hmm. Um, so, like, other people compose differently from me. Um, I've always been, like, the physical act of like improvisation mm -hmm. is where I got my entryway into music. I wasn't yeah. like, Oh, I have an idea and I'm going to notate it down. It was like, yeah. I played something on piano and then I want a way for someone else to play it. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, music notation, recording, any of that is just like, for me, you have to hear it first. Yeah. Like it's, it's not, and I'm getting to the point where I can kind of tell in people's music if they could hear it Yeah. or if they, put that instrument there but didn't like hear it before they put it there. <laughs> uh like christina and i were just listening to like a rachmaninoff piano concerto yesterday mm. and it's like for one thing it's his instrument but the orchestral stuff is right it's like mm. it's written yeah right and you go like okay like you heard something and mm. then figured out how to make it happen yeah um so for me it's i mean i'm still in the middle of it. Um, and I think I'll always be in the middle of it. Mm. But it's like with violin and piano, I can, I'm, I have enough facility on those instruments that like, yeah. there isn't anything I can at least play at and know how it'll sound. Sure. Um, so I'd say for those, uh, my partner Christina is a clarinetist. So like mm -hmm. at this point, I've written a lot of stuff for clarinet. <laughs> and it's an awesome, it's like, it has a huge range. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that's cool about woodwind instruments is they really all have like at least three voices. Like, yeah. So like the shalomo versus the altissimo versus kind of the bass register mm -hmm. all like sounds so different. Yeah. Um, so for me, yeah, I think uh, the last five years I've really been like getting comfortable with woodwind instruments. Mm -hmm. Um, and then electronics as well. So, yeah. um, 
kind of one of the things that's just it's always been in my music but like i've written enough now that i'm starting to notice my own tropes Hmm. um is taking things that i hear that you can do with electronic instruments like like um Mm. how do you make acoustic instruments through music notation do something that a guitar pedal does yeah and so for me that's something (laughs) that's like it's really interesting because i can hear it i Mm. know how i can hear it how do i put it on a page and get someone to play it live Mm. and so that's been a cool thing for me recently no i remember you uh seeing something that you're figuring out how to do delay yeah as notation yeah so that was (laughs) like yesterday or the day before Mm. so i'm in the middle of i'm trying to get i should have all the notes done for it so it's a (laughs) clarinet quartet plus string quartet octet which Mm. is actually like a huge ensemble to write for yeah even if you're writing for an orchestra you never really have more than like five to eight parts going at once yeah you just throw it on other yeah things. it's just voiced and like <laughs> range and things like that um so it's been cool it's been a cool mountain to climb <laughs> um but there's this one section where like i didn't use a delay like i actually just played it because i knew what i wanted mm-hmm. um so three of the clarinets do this and basically it's a lick that slows down towards the end mm. that is then echoed by the other two clarinets. So it goes like, mm. but I want the echoes of the slowdowns to happen at the same point in each phrasing, even yeah. though they start an eighth note apart. So it goes like, yeah. at the same time, the strings are doing this gesture that's just like plays like a chord but it's not in time yeah with the clarinets um so i ended up doing a thing with stemming so i basically like purposely made it impossible for them to count it like they can play the phrase and they know when to start Mm -hmm. but like since i did the stemming wrong like there's no way to tell where your note (laughs) is supposed to be with the other persons yeah but we're going to have a conductor Mm. so it's going to be like go 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 let them do their thing. Yeah. Come back in. <laughs> um, but it was like, I had a sound that mm-hmm. I wanted that was very specific. Yeah. That notating it a different way. It's like, I don't want yeah. them to be playing it rhythmically correct. Mm-hmm. I want them to be playing, someone plays a thing and then it's echoed. Yeah. And that's that's something that I'm sort of constantly struggling with. It's like, I know what I want this to be, but making forcing it into this medium of notation takes away all of the things that I'm trying to say with it. <laughs> yeah. Um I think of it as like I mean the left brain light, right brain thing is like a mm-hmm. super simplification, but like when I compose something that's big like this, like if I'm doing a film score or something, just mm-hmm. just there's not time to do this, so you <laughs> yeah. just have to knock it out. But when I'm doing like my own music, it's like usually I come up with something improvisationally, Mm -hmm. either on violin or um, piano. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of times for my classical stuff, I'm doing really like when I write songs, like things that I would consider like opus numbers, songs or pieces that are like this one's this one's part of my like, (laughs) you know, this one counts. Um I usually am grabbing something that I came up with like 
mm-hmm. three or four years before and I have on a voice memo and yeah. I haven't known what to do with. Yeah. Um, so it's like there's this sort of right brain of just like playing on the piano or on my violin, trying mm-hmm. to come up with something, making like a little sketchy demo. Yeah. And then like waiting for the right time for it to actually be born. And so then it's like, then I look at it and I go like, well, I've got this piece that's going to be this orchestration. So mm-hmm. like, how can I fit this thing into it? Yeah. And I get that. And then at some point, I usually have spent enough time thinking about it that then I do like some more improvisation, either on violin or piano. Mm-hmm. But I've spent enough time with it that I'm improving like into the piece. So like, I know what the sound of the piece is. So mm-hmm. I'm looking for the right next thing. <laughs> um so for this one, I work, I've work. i worked on it for about six months now, on and off. Um, and the whole B section I really wrote like maybe a week ago, a week mm. or two ago. Um, it was really, I was working out with Christina and she said like, hey, the, so originally the, I'm calling them verses because it's a hymn. <laughs> so rather than like movements, I'm like verse one, verse two, verse three, um, just because it's artsy. <laughs> um so verse two is like quiet and uses harmonics and mm. I'm, it's kind of a theme in variations and I'm kind of like, um, so anytime I write a piece that's in a traditional format, really mm. anytime I write a piece, I like to think of it as going up against all my favorite pieces of that, like throughout time, like mm. not contemporaries, like I'm not going against my contemporaries. Like with this piece, I'm going against like Schubert's Death and the Maiden mm. and, uh, Crumb's Black Angels and the Paganini 24th variation and mm. the Rachmaninoff version of the tw- 24th Paganini variation and the Ludoslowski <laughs> version of the Paganini 24th variation. <laughs> I mean, like, if you're going to do a theme and variations on that Paganini thing, you're going against mm. some of the greatest composers in history. Mm. And I like that. So it's like, mm. is this as good? Sure. So, like, for strings especially and for clarinets now, like, I lo- know a lot of the moves. Mm-hmm. So, it's like, yeah, you do the harmonic move where they all do false harmonics and it sounds really pretty and ghostly mm. and cool and I know how to do that. <laughs> and, um, and so, I did that and it was kind of like four on the floor, just playing. I'm doing a thing in the piece where, like, the rhythm and meter keeps expanding and contracting. Mm. Um but like it's still, it was basically just playing it. <laughs> and Christina was like, hey, I, I think that section's really cool. Like if you're doing the Death in the Maiden thing, you should quote Death in the Maiden. Hmm. And then if you're doing, um, which itself was like a Schubert string quartet based on a song he'd written hmm. that he like couldn't get the chords out of his head. You know, it's yeah. like you want to do more with it. Yeah. Um, and then like just do more. So it kind of hmm. became like, the eight bar phrase, I inserted a quote from Death and the Maiden, but not the same quote that George Crumb quotes in Black <laughs> Angels. It's like a later, it's like the the B section quote. So then that became like a 20 measure mm. phrase rather than an eight <laughs> measure phrase. And then it just turned into something else that I was like, I could hear it because I'd spent the time with the piece. Mm. And so for me, um, so like a lot of people ask how like, especially when people are young, you know, it's like I teach. So it's like, how do I get my own sound? Sure. And I always think it's by like, um, so there's this book called Godel Escher Bach, which was this guy who wrote about like what he thought AI was going to be. And he tried to use art as explanations for it. Because he was saying intelligence is 
when you have a recursive feedback loop. Mm -hmm. So like you do something and then you get reactions from it and then that informs what you do next. And if you mm -hmm. do that enough, you have an intelligence, mm. uh, which is very much like what Google's doing right mm. now. It's like... I started trying to read that book at your house. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, I, I love it. But um, I'm also... I was a giant math nerd. I was a math athlete <laughs> and there are math problems in it. Um, spoiler alert. No, I don't want to spoil it. There's a math <laughs> problem in there that's very frustrating. Yes. And I was curious if he was doing what I thought he was doing. And he was. <laughs> um, I don't know if I'm going to spoil that book for people. So right. there's a it's, math. It's kind of an old book and kind not, of niche. Yeah. <laughs> so like there's a math problem in it where it's a logic problem of like, here are your three rules. You're starting with M, N, N, and N can equal M, N, and N can equal. Like it's, <laughs> it's a logic problem if you've ever had a logic class. And it's not solvable. Mm. And he never tells you it's solvable, but he implies that it's solvable. Mm. And so the idea is it's at the end of a chapter and I spent like an hour trying to solve it and I just went like, okay, this is not a solvable problem. Mm. He's screwing with me. And you turn the page and the next chapter goes like, I never said it was a solvable problem, but <laughs> the reason your intelligence is more intelligent than an artificial intelligence right now mm. is because you can go outside the problem yeah. and go, this is not solvable. Yeah. I'm just going to move on. Mm -hmm. And computers literally can't <laughs> like if you tell it to solve that problem mm -hmm. it will just keep trying mm -hmm. it will never come to the realization that it's an unsolvable problem <laughs> unless you write that into the code for mm -hmm. it to check for yeah and this was done in such a way that like um there were some sort of fractal answers that like you could continue expanding <laughs> it forever yeah. So a computer would just say, keeps going like, well, maybe if we add another MN to it, we'll get yeah. to it. And maybe if we add another one, we'll get to it. Well, I, we, I, we need a check. Yeah. And so like, that was a really cool, mm -hmm. I love that concept. And so like, I think that's, so like, I know when I was in my band in high school, we sounded like us mm -hmm. because we probably spent like 80% of our time listening to and playing our own music every day rather mm -hmm. than outside music. Yeah. So we had all these outside influences, but then like we just kind of kept delving deeper into our own sound and yeah. having that recursive feedback loop. Yeah. So eventually you like reach somewhere that is you. Yeah. <laughs> and so for me, I always feel like it's a miniature of that with each piece I work on. Like yeah. you start out and you're kind of like the piece is fuzzy and you start to put some pieces mm -hmm. there and it starts to come into focus. Yeah. And then there's a point for me where I kind of like break away from being in control of the decisions and just mm -hmm. go like, I, this piece is part of me now. Yeah. So I know there's a sound that I want here, mm -hmm. even though I don't know what it is. Yeah. But I'll know it when I see it and I can start looking for it. Yeah. I, and I know that feeling because I, I always describe it as, um, was it Raphael who said that? chiseling away at the marble yep. that isn't the statue right and so it's there's there's a piece there there's a music there that is right right it's what it's supposed to be but the struggle eventually is just trying to find yeah the piece in there yeah <laughs> um which kind of leads me to um what would be do you think you would have a magnum opus i hope not <laughs> yeah i think like if you have a magnum opus like i hope you're dead or retired yeah um 
but I'm starting to, um, Christina and I are kind of like, look, so we've worked, we've been working together for 11 years. Mm -hmm. Like there is not an art project that we don't do together. Sure. Um, I'm starting to look at larger form works. Mm -hmm. So we're starting to look at doing a musical. Mm -hmm. We're doing a full-length concerto with Fort Smith Symphony in May. Mm. Once we do that, I'm kind of like, okay, I'm ready to try and write a symphony. Sure. You know, like I, I didn't feel ready before. Yeah. I didn't feel like I was there with the orchestra yet. And like, that's the normal thing. Like Brahms didn't write his first symphony until he was like 45. Mm. And he wrote the Haydn Variations, which was his like... Some people love it. I think it's a pretty pedantic piece <laughs> it's really boring um but it was just him hey if i write this how does it sound mm. like i'm gonna take a theme that i already have mm -hmm. that's already written yeah. and i'm gonna write a bunch of variations so i can figure out like orchestral colors sure if i do this what sound do i get out mm -hmm. it's that feedback loop again yeah um so for me it's like starting to look at bigger projects yeah I'm starting to lean into just like all the stuff I was into as a kid. So like I've got a couple of like fiction books I would love to write. I don't mm -hmm. know when yeah. I will do that. Um, but it's like, you know, on the musical and on the books, like mm -hmm. we've been sketching out the world building and the story for like yeah. four years now. Yeah. You know, it's a thing that's like, this is going to be, I'm starting to look at like 10 year and 20 year projects mm -hmm. rather than, like we're doing an album um, in January and mm -hmm. it's been awesome. And it's the first one where we've been in charge of everything. Mm -hmm. Like always before it was like, either we wouldn't be the engineer on it or if we were the producers of it, we wouldn't be the composers on it mm -hmm. or the play. Like there was sure. always like some element that someone else was doing. Mm -hmm. And this is the first one we've done where it's like, we're running the whole ship. Yeah. And it's been great. It's been like, it's been kind of a thing where we go like, hey, like, let's try and do this now that we know mm. what we're doing. Yeah. See how it goes. And it's been like a ton of work, mm -hmm. but, but smooth. Yeah. And so that's been exciting. So then you go like, all right, so what's what's <laughs> next? Like, what's the yeah. hard thing? Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I mean, a lot of it for me is like, I don't know if this is like a third life crisis, but you just go like, <laughs> okay, so I had all these things I wanted to do as a kid that mm. I've worked towards. Mm -hmm. So now's Where the time to do it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, I feel like that's uh, what you were just talking about with the album. Uh, I feel like as a composer, I try too hard to control everything. Uh, and it's, it's partly because, Oh, well, I don't have the resources to, give this out to someone else so sure. that they can do it better. And so I have to do it myself, but then it's also like, oh, well, they just won't do it right. And so, <laughs> uh, what, what is that process for you in, in sort of triaging what you can and can't do? So I, um, kind of backdoored into music production. Mm -hmm. Um, so like, I was always really good with MIDI stuff. Like there was a free version of like 
a finale like program called sure. Noteworthy Composer mm. that had like MIDI capabilities. So you yeah. could write in notation and have it play back MIDI. So I remember I had like a friend who was doing like an, and this was like back in the Sound Blaster 32 days. So like <laughs> it sounded different depending on what sound card you had. Like there's been mm -hmm. a lot of um, MIDI standardization yeah. over the last, I'd say 15 years. Mm. Um, but back then it's like when you played a video game, you had to choose what sound card you had so it would play mm. the right sounds. Yeah. So like you had to tell it like, hey, I have a Sound Blaster 16. Mm -hmm. And they'd be like, oh, okay, cool then we'll switch which <laughs> sounds are happening so it sounds right-ish. Yeah. Um, hmm. So I had a friend who was like, um, I was shocked that we were kind of a little art collective. It was like in middle school, so it was like me um, and two of my friends, and um, they were both really incredible artists. Hmm. And one of them, she like was really good at coding and putting together hmm. video games. So it was like yeah. one of my friends would do all the textures yeah. and like, um, I would do all the music. So I wrote like, I mean, I don't know if we ever finished it. It was just <laughs> like a very simple game. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there was like a snow field and there was a, the, and so like I wrote like 45 minutes of like MIDI music yeah. for it in middle school. So I knew how to do that. And then in high school, um, my bandmate, so that I usually am partnered up with someone when I make art. Mm. Um, so my bandmate, Andy, had a first an analog four track that we recorded our first song on. So mm. we learned how to do mix down because we had 18 parts and it was an eight <laughs> minute song. Yeah. And we managed Oof. to mix it on an analog four track. <laughs> and then he got a digital four track and that's what we did a bunch of stuff on. Mm. Um, and then we had a friend who had Cubase that like, we tried to record an album at, but we just couldn't get enough time because it was yeah. like in his parents' laundry room. <laughs> And so I think we recorded like two songs there. Mm. Um, and then I did a lot of work with, so like I'd say like 16 to 21 or 22, I was always in like three or four bands as their violinist. <laughs> um, and so I got to like record in the studio and get to know how that works and how live yeah. sound works. And then when we started recording stuff with the Los Angeles New Music Ensemble and with some of the bands we were doing stuff with, I would just plant myself behind the engineer mm. and be like, what are you doing? How are you doing it? Yeah. And it was really like Christina was learning how to be a session producer and I was learning how to be an engineer. Mm. But kind of the idea of like, she's really good at seeing what's there and knowing what to do to make it better, which mm. is like, I always joke that she's Rick Rubin. <laughs> so it's like Rick Rubin's magic thing is that yeah. he's a great musician mm -hmm. and he knows what it should happen next. Yeah. And there are bands that have hated working with him mm -hmm. and they'll say like he didn't do anything. It's like that's because you didn't give him anything to yeah. work with. Not because mm -hmm. he didn't do anything, you know. Yeah. Um, and so I really learned the audio engineer side. She really learned the producing side of how mm -hmm. you work with people, how you like get the sounds to be, yeah. how to do transitions. Um, and then it started being like, I was faster at editing and doing uh, pitch correction mm. than the engineers just cause like as a violinist, I have done pitch correction <laughs> every day forever. <laughs> like my life is playing out of tune and then trying to fix it. Yeah. Um, and so, um, like we did one session where like the engineer did most of the work. 
And then like for the second session, I was like, hey, I'm just going to do the edits. Mm. Um, and then like, I feel like I'm finally good at mixing, but it took a long time. <laughs> and I have a really different, there are some people who mix like I do, but like I'm very not into toys hmm. in my mixing stuff. I'm mm -hmm. like, so I put the same reverb on everything. It's concerto bow, mm -hmm. spaces, impulse response. <laughs> um, I'm very particular with what reverbs I like. I mm -hmm. like mid-size halls, like <laughs> 800 to 1300 people. <laughs> I think any bigger than that, it's not good for acoustic instruments. Hmm. Um, there's not really a venue that I like the reverb of in Oklahoma City. <laughs> uh, OCCC is the closest thing. Mm. Um, but I'm like, why would I, if I'm doing acoustic instruments, why would I need to know any other reverbs now? I have one that works. I'm not pumping out enough stuff for people to be like, oh God, this reverb again. <laughs> like this producer only has one move. It's right. like, it's the sound I want. Mm -hmm. It's never not going to be the sound I want unless I'm doing something that's not an acoustic instrument. Sure. And then I really like the lexicon reverb. <laughs> and I don't really want to know more than that. Hmm. Does that make sense? Like yeah, I don't yeah, yeah. want, I don't mm -hmm. have fun choosing a reverb setting. That's sure. not exciting for me in the mixing mm. process. Um, I just want it to sound good. Yeah. Well, it also takes time away from being creative. Right. <laughs> and so that's kind of been my back door. Like I finally feel like I'm wrapping my head around mixing. Mm. So it's been this sort of like back door into that. Mm -hmm. And then you go like, oh, I've been doing this for 15 years. <laughs> cool. I kind of know what I'm doing now. Sure. Um, but yeah, it's a, it takes a while like for me to get comfortable enough with the tool that the tool mm -hmm. isn't getting in the way of me doing what I want. Yeah. And so for me, I've kind of like gotten that way with a lot of like, I'm that way with Finale. I have my own custom shortcuts, mm -hmm. which is real nerdy. Because <laughs> um, I'm on a laptop most of the time. Yeah. So I use the laptop shortcuts with some modifications. Every time I use Finale, I say out loud, I hate Finale. Cool. I love it. <laughs> And I cut my teeth on it because I did engraving pretty heavily. Mm -hmm. So like uh, Christina's old clarinet teacher hired me uh, when she was doing her doctorate. He wrote like two etude books and clarinet for dummies, like the official clarinet for dummies, which was <laughs> cool. Um, and so I had to enter in like, I don't know, 200 <laughs> pages worth of engraving. Yeah. And like not, I'm making no creative decisions. It's just... Here's a piece of paper. Make it look exactly like this 200 yeah. times. Yeah. Um, and so I got really fast at it with that. Mm. And it means that like I'm fast enough at finale now. Yeah. Like what I'm doing right now on the piece is the coda of the piece. I have recorded, but I don't have it in finale. Everything yeah. else I've gotten in finale now. I'm literally just transcribing it. I am doing yeah. oral skills yeah. from like many years ago. Yeah. But like literally. Yeah. That's the skill I'm using <laughs> along with being fast at finale. Mm -hmm. And like, I just sit there and my violin in my lap because like I audiate things like my fingers can sometimes bypass my brain mm. for knowing what the notes are. Yeah. So it's like, I listen to it and I play it back on my fiddle, just pizzicato. So I don't get um, distracted and start improving. <laughs> That's a problem. Um, and then I look at it and go like, what did I just do? And I'm like, oh, I did that, enter it into finale. That's kind okay. of my process. Mm. Um, so it's an interesting like 
I mean, it used to be when I got to that stage, mm-hmm. like the transcribing and then trying to figure <laughs> out how to make it sound right would just like kill my vibe mm-hmm. hardcore. <laughs> and now it's like, oh, okay. Like I'm quick enough at this. I'm not losing the thread sure. while I'm trying to get it on paper. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of more broader philosophical questions. Um, what makes art important? Oof. <laughs> um, better say this right so we don't lose our funding. <laughs> um, so for me, so there are, I like that there are people who disagree with me about art. Sure. And I like their art. Yeah, no. So whenever I say anything about art, I know I'm like being very Canadian right now and hedging all my bets. Say the views that I say are only indicative of the views that I apply to myself and but not others. But at the others. same time, like this is you. I'm asking you. Right. You're not representing anyone else other than No, me. absolutely. And this um, is your name that's on the podcast. So <laughs> So I think for me, art happens with people. Mm-hmm. Like there has to be someone. It's like the difference between a sound. Like, you know, if a tree falls in the forest, sure. doesn't make a sound. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, it makes vibrations. It makes waves in air pressure. Yeah. But it's not a sound unless someone hears it. Mm-hmm. I, I've always been like, there's a very clear answer to that question for mm-hmm. me, which is that like, it's making something that happens in a medium if it falls. But if there's not anyone to hear it, it's not a sound mm-hmm. because it's not being interpreted as a sound. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's kind of a Dada thing is like art is what people interact with as art. Mm. But I also have, so art is anything that people interact with, mm. but I have art that I find effective. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say like good and bad. Um, I don't want to make like a moral judgment sure. <laughs> call on the art, but the, like it achieves what it's trying to do. Well, not even, <laughs> if it's so there is that so that's mm-hmm. i definitely make judgments on artists depending on whether i think they achieve what they want to do mm-hmm. the art itself especially like physical mediums and things that are mm-hmm. less attached to the artist i think they can achieve things outside of what the artist wanted them to achieve sure so i think they can be failures for the artist yeah. but still be effective art mm-hmm. in a different way yeah um But I think what I find really interesting about art is that, so like, hate is a strong word. I disagree with the (laughs) statement that music is a universal language. Mm. I think music is absolutely just as coded in culture and dependent on cultural norms Mm -hmm. as any language. Yeah. I also don't think music is like, a language per se. Mm. So a lot of people like to give narratives to art and say like this art is about yeah, whatever that thing is. I think art is an expression that is then experienced by someone else. Mm. And so I think you express something in art, but I think the mediums of art tend to be much less specific than language. Mm-hmm. So like with language, it's very easy to express exactly what you're feeling. Yeah. 
but it's very hard to express things that aren't they don't have words for them for one well that aren't words <laughs> for them but also that are less specific mm-hmm. so like to me there's sort of a there's a lot of things that words do well but mm-hmm. it is not a perfect communicative medium sure um like books for example um Christina and I have worked on talking about stuff like this a lot. Um, But like, so there's this false equivalency that people do with written word Mm. that somehow literature and the written word, and this is part of a, you know, colonialist European Western mindset Mm. is somehow greater than like an oral history. Yeah. But the only way we can get people to understand books is to like have a teacher or someone who knows the book explain the context of the book and explain what they mean and why they wrote it a certain <laughs> way. And there's this like whole back end mm-hmm. because there's so many things that when you just write down the words, mm-hmm. you don't have context. Mm-hmm. You don't have um, visual cues of how the person's feeling. Mm-hmm. You don't have voice cues of what their tone of voice is. Yeah. So there's all these things that are missing. Mm-hmm. And to me... Um, music and art is like all of the, it's a way to express all of those nonverbal things. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the verbal things too, in a way that is communicative yeah. outside of just like, like you can have music that sounds like a yell mm-hmm. and it sounds like a specific yell or a specific shriek <laughs> or a specific thing. And it doesn't have to be like that. It sounds like, but that it feels like it. Mm-hmm. So how do you like get that feeling? Yeah. And we can try and do it with words. Art a lot of times is like it is expressive of something mm-hmm. that then then be interpreted. So I always feel like there's a an a level of empathy that occurs between art and someone experiencing the art. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's kind of like even if the empathy's wrong. Like, even if the artist was trying to do something mm-hmm. and the person got something else from it, like, yeah. that's part of the power of art rather yeah. than a weakness. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, for me, that's... It allows it to be... It's almost like the less specific you are with your art, but the more expressive you are, mm-hmm. the more it can be, like, for someone receiving it, an expression of exactly what they're going for. Yeah. Because you've taken off some of mm-hmm. the like, I'm going through this and these are the specifics, but it's like, here is the general shape of this experience that I've had. Yeah. And then because of that, it's malleable enough that when you experience it, mm-hmm. it fills that shape for you exactly. Yeah. And so you are experiencing your truth through the art mm-hmm. and you have this feeling of empathy with the artist, like they went through the same thing. Yeah. Even if a lot of the details are mm-hmm. different because those details aren't in the art. Yeah. It's like words are solids and art is liquid. <laughs> so art can kind of fill the mm-hmm. container, whatever shape it is in you yeah. of that experience. And it's why so often I hear about people saying like, Oh, this artist, like it feels like they wrote it for me or right. whatever. <laughs> And I mean, the art, it like it fits yeah. you, yeah. you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. So I think for me, I think art is a way to express humanity. Mm. 
I think it's a way to express ourselves mm-hmm. and understand each other. Yeah. And I think like that to me is the point. Like I, when I write music, it's because there's like things that I have ex- <laughs> that there are things that music have made me experience. There are like moments and builds and mm-hmm. these experiences that I'm like, this changed me. This mm-hmm. was like an experience for me. Yeah. And so I want to give that to someone else. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like you try and when you're doing stuff that's like sort of art, it's like the original art that had that movement for me might not be something that you have an experience with. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to interpret that experience and showcase. <laughs> uh, like there's a Max Richter thing where he did, uh, uh, he just did this very, it's not even that weird, like minimalist remix sort of <laughs> like of uh the four seasons which is like the most overplayed classical piece <laughs> in the history of the world but it's like what he did is he kept getting to these parts that like i really like minimalism too mm-hmm. and he would get to these parts of the piece that were like these moments of beauty mm-hmm. and then he would just make them extend for like a minute and a half like this is this mm-hmm. is the part you know this is yeah um and I really connected with that because there's a piece of mine that like I had this ostinato that's just this three note little counterpoint chord thing mm-hmm. that I lifted directly from this box sonata mm-hmm. that is like, I don't know, one 150th of that movement yeah. of the whole piece. Mm-hmm. But like for me, it's like, no, like there's just something about this specific voicing on this instrument. Yeah. And so I just like planted it there and just sat on it. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, listen to this, listen to this thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so he was doing the same thing with that. So like, there's many things that art does, mm-hmm. but I feel like it is a way to express and to like, I don't know. I don't know a better way to like, feel like other mm-hmm. humans make sense yeah. than to see art that makes <laughs> sense. And you go like, okay, like, yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> uh, we're, brains trying to understand other brains um <laughs> um i feel like well it's hard to ask a question without it going everywhere uh <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> um so i'll jump into the spirituality side of the thing and then we'll see how much time we have for the broad things uh, sure. <laughs> Um, what is the role of spirituality or religion in your life? So, and you're going to say that I'm being Canadian and hedging my bets on this. (laughs) Um, I think people all find ways to make existence have meaning Mm -hmm. to them. And I'm not particularly interested in saying one is better than another. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm a big fan of, you know, like science and, mm-hmm. and all of those things. But, like, so we don't know that much. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, science is very... If you actually get into, like, where the research is now, you're reading the thing that, like, mm-hmm. this has been released, you know. And, and the really good... If you don't understand something, if someone wrote something and you don't understand it and you've done the research, mm-hmm. like you've done the back end stuff that you need to kind of get into that, mm-hmm. to me, then it was not communicated well. Mm-hmm. Like there are some scientists who, and this is the same thing I try and do as a teacher, and this is what I believe of as an mm-hmm. artist, who like 
being a good teacher is being able to make very complex things simple. Yeah. It's distilling it down so that mm -hmm. like you you don't want if you're making something sound really complex, it's only helpful if like that's literally the simplest way that you can explain it. <laughs> and like to me, the only way to have understanding of something is like little discrete simple steps, like one step at a time. Yeah. You, if you know this, okay, then this, then mm -hmm. this. So when you get I think there's always this assumption that science is like scientists secretly like the experts really know more than we do. Mm. And it's like, it only goes like two steps beyond what the public knowledge is. Mm -hmm. I mean like quantum physics, if you have a cursory knowledge of quantum physics mm -hmm. and then quarks and string theory, like mm -hmm. to the point of like the jokes that they'll do on the big bang theory mm. are pretty much the edge of what that field knows. Mm hmm even though that's like a not terribly sophisticated sitcom. Right. So that's an understatement. <laughs> yeah. So like science is really good at answering hypotheses. Mm -hmm. If this happens, then this happens. It's very, we have not really figured out why mm -hmm. anything happens. Like <laughs> anything. Like my favorite book as a kid was how things work. Mm. There's a lot of deep questions that I had answered at a very young age. Sure. Because, like, my parents had a copy of how things work in the bathroom. So I'd go to the bathroom and I'd be like, oh, the sky is blue because of, you know, diffraction. Cool. Mm. You know. <laughs> like, the blue light tends to disperse in the atmosphere because of the makeup. Mm. That's why our sky's blue. Yeah. <laughs> why does the color blue diffract differently in certain gases? than in others we have no idea yeah like anything where you get like one step past like the, the physical answer, yeah <laughs> it's like we have no idea like quantum mm -hmm. physics is we had until quantum physics was figured out like before einstein mm -hmm. it was very like hey we're figuring out how everything works yeah like there are these laws that are just true all the time yeah like gravity and magnetics and mm -hmm. all of these fundamental forces all like act a certain way all the time no matter what mm -hmm. the second you get into quantum physics it's yeah. like literally none of that is true anymore <laughs> yeah yeah um so the thing with um schrodinger's cat right mm -hmm. the cat is both alive and dead mm -hmm. um because there's a cat in a box and there is an electron that um th so there's a uh, the idea is that there's a radioactive this is the part people don't usually remember mm. there's a radioactive item that if it goes into half-life because mm. half-life is just the average amount of time it takes for um half of a material to decompose okay. into simpler yeah. materials mm. um so there is a box where if the electron is in place A, the cat is alive. If the electron is in place B, the cat is dead. Mm -hmm. So there's a thing where you can know the position of an electron mm -hmm. or the speed and direction of yeah. an electron. But you cannot know both because in <laughs> order to know where the electron is, I know this is getting kind of far afield. Right, right. <laughs> in order to know where the electron is, you need to basically hit the electron which then stops it from moving. Like, that's how we know where the electron is. So you, like, 
yeah. put your finger and see if it's there. Mm-hmm. So we have this thing in quantum theory where it's the electron is simultaneously in both places until you check. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Yeah. But we've never been able to check. Yeah. So is it? <laughs> or are we just assuming it is because we can't tell? Like it's mm-hmm. simultaneously in both spots just because we don't know how to check. Yeah. So to me, there's like for spirituality, it's I have a code of ethics and everything that I very much mm-hmm. run by. But I really think like everyone needs a way to assign meaning to existence. Mm-hmm. Um, my big thing with this is so like the placebo effect mm-hmm. is a way for science to like name when if certain attributes that should not matter <laughs> make something happen. And it's one of the most, it's the placebo effect by itself is usually more powerful than most mm-hmm. medicines that you can give someone. Mm-hmm. So, because we have a name for it, the placebo mm-hmm. effect, <laughs> we assume somehow it's not important. Mm-hmm. Like, people of a certain religion who have a specific spiritual prayer done over them before surgery will have like a 60% better chance of getting through the surgery. Mm -hmm. And scientists can say, well, that's the placebo effect because you've convinced the brain that Mm -hmm. they're going to survive and it makes the body fight harder. Mm -hmm. And it has, you know, like, that's a physical manifestation of that specific ritual working though. Yeah. Like the ritual worked. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And you could be like, well, it didn't work because of that. It worked because of the placebo effect. And it's like, that's just another name for the ritual. Yeah. Like, so (laughs) for me, like, I don't assume that my Mm -hmm. ways of assigning meaning are any more. I would never, like, if I have a religious, like, mantra, it's that I don't want to impose my religion on other people. (laughs) That's really like, yeah. if there's like... Mm -hmm. Because I think some people need it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's powerful for yeah. some people. Um, and I know like my own... I think there's an assumption that like if something manifests in a physical way, it is no longer spiritual. Hmm. And for me, like just because I know something has physical attributes that can be tested in a lab does not make it less spiritual. Mm-hmm. Like for me existence and the pursuit of why things exist Mm -hmm. and why things are the way they are is itself a spiritual quest. And you Mm -hmm. can't like the assumption that science is somehow this like Mm. completely (laughs) non-human like thing Mm -hmm. to me is just not the case. It's humans trying to figure out meaning and why and how things Mm -hmm. um, do our own lens, through our own senses. Right. (laughs) Um, and so for me, it's, um, I mean, I was thinking about this the other time. So I'll give you, since I'm being so <laughs> namby-pamby about this, I'll, I'll give you some specifics. So specifics for what have really been drivers for my life. Mm-hmm. Um, my granddad died when I was six or seven. It was mm-hmm. like a couple years before we moved down here. Um, and he was a really big, like, he helped raise me. Mm. my family this is very gendered and old-fashioned but my family has like my mom's side had all girls for like generations on Mm. all sides and so i was the first like 
male son, like male <laughs> uh, in the thistle family for like mm. two or three generations. Yeah. Um, and he was like a scientist. His team invented the powdered egg recipe during World War II. Wow. Um, he was a poet. <laughs> His book of poetry came in second to Margaret Atwood's for the National Prize. And that was the thing that launched her career. <laughs> he was like, any other year. <laughs> I had to submit it the year that Margaret Atwood decided to have her breakout career and become like Canada's author. Um, he wrote like short stories. Um, he had this one that like I read growing up called Peter the Sea Trout that was about the sea trout because like the way trout work is they like are birthed low in the river and mm -hmm. then to breed they have to like swim oh. up river and it's yeah. really dangerous and it's, mm -hmm. it's like the perfect young yeah. adult <laughs> journey story yeah. and it's just as good at, like for me it was just like oh yeah this is my granddad's one but it was just as good as like Narnia or any of the other ones yeah, I yeah. read um, so he died from lung cancer because hmm. um, he smoked from age 12 to like 55 yeah and then he quit and yeah so I wanted 30 years more of him hmm. being around and so I made a decision like I saw him on the oxygen tank and it was like mm -hmm. you just watched him with her mm -hmm. so i was like i'm not going to do anything that will shorten i'm not going to self-impose my own death hmm. if i die from you know mm -hmm. whatever causes then i do but like i'm not going to smoke i'm not going to take any drugs that could affect my brain mm -hmm. i'm not going to do Things that are like extreme sports that are actually kind of dangerous to try mm -hmm. and get a thrill. Like I was like, <laughs> I I like this mode of existence. Mm -hmm. And I'm not like a crazy try and extend my life person, but I'm just not going to do anything. Because mm -hmm. it's like, I wanted more of him and I want like, hopefully there are people who will feel the same way to, for mm -hmm. me. And I want to give them 30 or 40 more years mm -hmm. of me. Yeah, Your life is not yours, but it's, everyone's including yours yeah <laughs> and so for me that's like one of the driving things for me is like i want to create art i want to be part mm. of humanity <laughs> and i don't want to do anything dumb to shorten it that then i'll be like oh my god it was not worth <laughs> smoking like cigarettes were not worth losing 30 years mm -hmm. uh, and then my grandmother same side uh got parkinson's and she lived through that for like eight years. Oof. And, you know, it was. So watching her go through that, I was like, she didn't do anything to mm -hmm. deserve that. There was not like, not that he deserved to get lung cancer, but it's like he smoked and therefore he got lung cancer. Sure. Like there was an action that he took that he could have avoided. Mm -hmm. There was nothing she could have done. Do mm -hmm. not get Parkinson's. Yeah. And it is like. You lose control of your mind. You lose control of your body. It's mm -hmm. literally like it is what I would imagine the closest thing to hell while mm -hmm. being alive is. And so I saw that and I kind of went, well, it runs in my family. Mm -hmm. I know Parkinson's is a genetic thing. Mm -hmm. So the worst thing that could happen is I get Parkinson's mm -hmm. and lose control of my physical being. Yeah. So everything else isn't really a tragedy. Hmm. So for me, like, that's that's a tragedy. That's something that, like, mm -hmm. would be horrifying for me to go through. And mm -hmm. if it happens, it happens, and I'll go through it, and I'll figure it out. But, mm -hmm. like, 
everything else became like, you know, like if something's hard or like someone's mean to me or whatever, (laughs) you know, like it's, but it is like people hold on to a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I've just kind of been like, I'm not, those are kind of my two driving. I mean, those were the two, it was a long time before there was another death in my family Mm -hmm. after that. So like I experienced those two, hers took a while. Yeah. Um, But like my mom was the primary caregiver. So like, I saw the whole progression with both of them. Um, So for me, if I don't have Parkinson's, I don't really have anything to complain about. Like (laughs) I still complain, but it's kind of like a, that's, that's a real tragedy. Yeah. So it's interesting because it's like, um, you don't have to ask for the manager. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, it's, so one of my greatest strengths is that I do not hold grudges. Mm. I do not hold grudges to the point people are like, you should, you should be <laughs> holding a grudge about that one. Yeah. Like all the time. Mm. Um, but I really do believe like forgiveness isn't about them. Mm-hmm. It's about you releasing yeah. the power of what happened to you. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I am naturally very, very, very guilt-ridden if I do (laughs) anything that I think has hurt another person. Mm. Like, I hold on to stuff from, like, I have, like, five things in my life that I'm like, I really wish I hadn't done that. Mm. And I think about them. (laughs) Like, I should be an anxiety-ridden mess. I should. (laughs) Because, like, I naturally have that tendency to, like, Mm. really feel bad about actions that I've done if they hurt someone else. Mm. But I feel like my solution to that hasn't been to try and push those feelings down. It's been to try and act in such a way Mm -hmm. to not do... Like, the answer to being someone who gets very upset about hurting other people Mm -hmm. is to try and act a way that I won't hurt other people. Yeah. To me, and it's been like, Mm -hmm. I don't know, it's working. I don't feel guilty. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, it's a... Yeah. And so that for me is a, like, I, I don't like saying things about people that I would mind if they hurt mm-hmm. anytime. Not yeah. like this is a safe time. Like, I don't mm-hmm. trash talk people. Yeah. Because um, I want it to be like, because they always do hear about it. I mean, like, if you trash talk someone, <laughs> that, if there's one truth in communities, it's like, if you, so this is one of those things, it's like, I believe in karma. Mm. Now, do I believe in the traditional, you know, that I don't know enough about to talk about in any way, but like resurrection and that karma has Mm. to do with future lives and things like that. Uh, I don't know. I've, as far as I know, I've never died and been born again. Mm. Maybe I have. I don't know. (laughs) Like I only know this Mm. current bodily existence. Sure. But I do believe when you put positive energy out there mm-hmm. you will get positive energy back yeah now what i don't believe is people who are like if you put positive energy out there you'll get it back and if bad things happen to you it's your fault mm. i think i am very lucky that i live in a mm-hmm. i mean the term first world country is even bad mm. but like that i live in a situation like someone could shoot me at any moment regardless of whether i'm nice to people or not sure that's not an expression of my current karmic 
level for me that like oh it's because i was like mean to someone yesterday well it's the same with the like the parkinson's example right like yeah i don't think she was like yeah being meted down a punishment from on high Mm. so to me you can only control what you put out Mm -hmm. so to me if you put out positive stuff you get Mm -hmm. it back yeah and when you put out negative stuff you get it back. Mm-hmm. And just because that is expressed through the collective consciousness of humanity. <laughs> like a lot of times I think the thing that I've never gotten is when people talk about collective consciousness as this sort of like outside force. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's this ether in which your karma resides. Yeah. Like to me, karma resides in the collectious consciousness of living beings. Mm-hmm. So like if I'm nice to someone they will react and it's not like a transactional situation, Mm -hmm. but in general, like if I'm a positive force on the way people feel, then people will feel more positively towards me and Mm -hmm. that will affect the collective consciousness of my community around me, which will affect my life. Yeah. Just because that is all something that you could explain about interpersonal relationships <laughs> doesn't mean it's not a karmic force. Sure. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, like I, I always feel like spirituality-wise, the metaphors we use tend to be like forces and mm-hmm. outside influences. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's more of a, like the way I imagine it, which again is just, how I do it in my brain mm. is more like a web of interconnected yeah. living beings mm-hmm. that the overall Brownian motion of you putting positive stuff into that network mm-hmm. will mean that there's more positive force in that network around. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think like spirituality wise, mm-hmm. those were two really defining. Cause it's like, yeah, my parents are still together. I had a very happy childhood. Mm. Um, and I'm really, I don't know, I, you can't separate this. I don't know how much of that is just my brain chemistry is that mm. I'm naturally inclined to be positive <laughs> about these things or if it's because I made a decision to mm. and have practiced it. Yeah. I think it's some combination of the two. Mm. I, I think like there are people who, you know, have to struggle against their brain chemistry to mm. feel a certain way. Yeah. Um, and I mean... It's interesting. Uh, like we talk about that, like I'm always very positive, but mm-hmm. a lot of it is like, it's not that I don't have problems. I just don't particularly want to burden other mm-hmm. people with them. Mm-hmm. Like that's not like if we were having a lesson, I'm not going to tell you if I've had a bad day. Yeah. Cause like, that's not something that's helpful for you. <laughs> yeah. So it's an interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I really feel like that's a, like that is a mantra yeah. of mine. <laughs> um, there are deeper questions, but uh, this specific podcast has uh, gone on long enough for the length of questions that I would continue to ask. So, <laughs> uh, two, three more questions? Okay. Sure. Um, what makes you happy? So, this 
is very unmillennial of me, <laughs> according to how baby boomers talk about millennials. I love the feeling of finishing something, even though it's what I'm worst at, mm. and then relaxing yeah. the day after I finish a huge project mm -hmm. and just having absolutely no, I need to be working on this, I need to be doing that. <laughs> like, um, it's hopefully how I will feel on Friday when mm. I send in this piece to all of my players <laughs> who are all incredible players and they're all on deck to play the piece in like a week and a half. Mm. Yeah. As long as I get them the parts. Yes. Um, so that makes me really happy. I love seeing people that I know succeed. People mm. that I really like succeed at what they're doing. Mm. Um, and I really... I love, so one of the things that I'm best at is learning stuff fast. Mm. Like I'm, it's, it's a weird, like, I think my skill that's made mm. me good at stuff. Uh, Cause there are other people who are more like musically instantly talented than I am. Mm. I know it's kind of a catchy word to say talented, but there is like mm. a natural proclivity mm. to doing certain things mm -hmm. that some people just have. Sure. Um, I didn't just like naturally play stuff in tune. That was mm. many years of very good teachers sure. yelling at me constantly. Mm. Um, so I love learning new stuff mm. from smart people. Hmm. And by smart people, I mean everybody. I love learning new stuff. Yeah. And like, I just, I love having my like, how, oh, that yeah. does make sense. Yeah. Because um, I'm a very like intuitive person and I, I tend to, this would, people get mad at me in high school for this all the time. We, <laughs> I had a bunch of friends who were debaters and they'd be like, oh, we're going to debate. And I'm like, well, I really think it's this. And then they'd make a really cogent point. I'd be like, oh, you convinced me. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm. And they'd be like, what? No, you're supposed to fight. Yeah, you're supposed <laughs> to argue with me right now. It's like, but you made a really good point. Like, <laughs> You convinced me, you know. Isn't that what the point of this is? <laughs> um, so I love that. I love mm. like that sense of learning something new. Mm -hmm. And I really love the act of creating something that is something that I enjoyed. Like really my artistic life is all of the things I loved experiencing most as art, mm -hmm. I want to make. Yeah. Like this is something that mattered to me. So I want to make that thing for other yeah. people. Um, it's like, for example, like whether or not this ever happens, but the, the book series, if I ever write it, one of the big things is I have a huge problem with like young adult fantasy novels is mm. that I think they are based on really racially suspect aristocratic social underpinnings hmm. of like, you get to be the protagonist because you're secretly a prince. Mm. So secretly, you've just got the right genes. Yeah. And that's why you have this magic power that only you can have. Mm -hmm. Those other people, like it, yeah. it creates these like, it is a narrative of racial disparity mm -hmm. that is coached in non-racial terms. Sometimes, yeah. sometimes it's coached in extremely racial sure. terms that is not a vision of what I want the future to be. Mm. And I think that 
is a negative force to the world being the community that I am part of, which I really believe mm-hmm. in like egalitarianism and that like racial and gender, like you should never not be able, not be allowed to do something because mm-hmm. of a physical attribute. Like yeah. just, I just don't believe in that. Yeah. Um, and it is in like 99% <laughs> of young adult fantasy literature yeah. that like someone is part of a specific magical race mm. and when they're going through adolescence, magically they can shoot fire out of their ears or whatever. Mm. So mine would be coached on the idea of practice mm-hmm. and the idea that like all the magical stuff that would be in it would be things that it's not like Oh, you were born with the innate magic talent, so you get mm-hmm. to go to the special school. Yeah. It's practice. Mm-hmm. And like for me, good fiction is a way of taking real cultural mm-hmm. community things and placing them in a perfect scenario for you to highlight it. Yeah. Like that to me is if I'm writing fiction and it's not commentating on some aspect of human sure. existence, I don't really know what it's doing. Sure. Um, so for me, that's something that like, like I think it's hugely problem. Like the whole mm-hmm. wizard muggle thing mm-hmm. in Harry Potter is hugely culturally programmatic. Yeah. And she's doing something with it to like try and make it a little bit more. Right. But yeah. And that's, I mean, and she's not by any means the worst of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's something about like, if you reread the Lord of the Rings and this has been done, someone wrote this from the perspective of Sauron Mm. of like, this is a group of like aristocratic Western European, like royalty based, (laughs) you know, like Mm. these are monarchies. They're fighting against a, the horde of invaders that have technology, technology and like, you can really read it as like. It's the old European aristocracy fearing the <laughs> onslaught of proce- like progress and yeah. technology and like mm. egalitarianism. Mm-hmm. Like, There's well, a this, lot of fantasy, yeah. this special race of like humans that lives mm. four times as long as everybody. Like, <laughs> and then they've been kings for forever and ruled over these people. And, mm. the, and you're kind of like, I'm kind of with the like uprising people here. <laughs> like, I mean, let's be honest. Yeah. You haven't done a terribly good job of like <laughs> running things. So for me, it's important that, like, if I'm going to write fiction, mm-hmm. what I'm trying to do is to get, it's like, this is weird, but, like, I really believe that, like, whether or not you are controlling it, there is yeah. going to be a moral to the story, especially if it's, like, <laughs> young adult fiction. Mm-hmm. If it's young adult fiction, then it's usually about adolescence and going between like being a dependent to being an adult and everything you put in there Mm -hmm. like the medium is the message like Mm -hmm. everything in there is sending a message to those kids so like i don't want to send a message to kids that like you didn't get born in the right circumstances so too bad Mm -hmm. or like it wasn't super easy for you so Mm -hmm. like my main character in that book is not going to be the best one. Mm. There's going to be someone else who's better. Mm. Yeah. Because, and 
part of it will be coming to grips with that mm-hmm. and like working hard and becoming you know like it's, yeah those are the things that i want it to grapple with mm-hmm. um that was a long answer <laughs> no, for what makes sense. <laughs> um what advice do you have for people what just generally yep, just whatever general advice <laughs> i think being kind goes a long way yeah i think every day i have like no, I mean, there are some situations where anger is needed because being kind is not working. Mm-hmm. But I say that. I don't practice that. Mm. But I'm also in a position where, mm-hmm. you know, I haven't been forced to. <laughs> right. Um, but I just think, like, I'm given 100 opportunities a day to mm-hmm. either, like, pull someone down a notch or two. Or just be kind. Mm-hmm. And I try to just choose to be kind yeah. every time. Mm-hmm. It just, I don't know. I think that's where a lot of like internal strife that people Because mm-hmm. I can only speak to how I feel. Mm-hmm. I know like when I feel a great amount, like I get nervous about things. Mm-hmm. But when I feel anxiety about stuff, it's because I did something and I'm not sure if it was the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to admit that it was the wrong thing to do. Mm-hmm. And I'm, str- you know what I mean? Like yeah. that tears me up. <laughs> and so I'm like, I don't want, mm. I'm just, I'm really not into like revenge mm-hmm. and taking people down a notch. Yeah. And I just think like, if you're just kind to people mm-hmm. and like, just do your thing, like whatever your thing is, like, yeah. Do your thing and be nice to people. And like, I think you get a pretty good life out of it. Sure. <laughs> Lastly, cake or pie? Ooh. <laughs> so I do love cheesecake. Mm-hmm. An ice cream cake and white cake, a devil's food cake. <laughs> But man, I was raised on fresh like berry pie. Mm. Like raspberries and blueberries and blackberries are like the crop in (laughs) Ottawa. There's not a lot. (laughs) Uh, But berries do really well. Mm. And so like good raspberry pie. Yeah. That's where it is. (laughs) Apple pie with the, I do the slice of sharp cheddar like 1950s style. Mm. Love it. (laughs) That's great. Patrick, thank you for doing this with me. Thanks for having me. Um, where can we find you and your things? Um, so you can check out my website, which is www.patrickconlinmusic.com. Mm-hmm. Um, I update it about once every year to a year and a half, <laughs> but it usually has generally what the big things are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to be doing a lot coming up. Yeah. So um, it's exciting. Um, I'd say, yeah, check out my stuff. I, I finally... I'm going toe-to-toe. Patrick Conlon is a very <laughs> common name. Um, so I've been, uh, you know, fighting for internet supremacy in the search mm-hmm. with a tattoo artist from New York and a former member of the Green Party in Australia and a couple <laughs> other people. But I'm finally starting to get up there. So mm. I've actually, uh, I've been thinking about how much would it cost to just buy Santiago.com? 
It's not taken. Really? Yeah, it's it it's being taken up by a squatter. Right. But like it's not like the capital of Chile doesn't have it. Right. So interesting. Like, yeah. Yeah. I've thought about it. Yeah. <laughs> if you own Santiago.com, hit me up. We'll, we'll talk about it. <laughs> um but yeah, no, uh at least you have the the music one and that's specific. And, right. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I'm excited to uh see and hear whatever it is that you uh put out. And I'm very thankful to have you as a mentor and friend and teacher and whatever all of those words uh that yeah thank you for everything that you've helped me with thank you <laughs> um yeah i'm santiago ramones patrick conlon you can find everything that i do on my website santiago i make music uh which you can download my demo for free songs with words um, and you can also find this podcast on my website or on YouTube or on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, and I think it's on Google Play and probably lots of other platforms that I don't know about, but they get syndicated out to everywhere else. Um, I was in my podcast with my three things. They shaped my life philosophy. Those three things are love never fails. It's going to be okay. I might be wrong.